0: Hi everyone, Seth Powell here. Before we get to today's episode, I'd like to just make a brief statement. This is part of a larger uh, statement that was sent out via email, as well as posted on social media earlier this week. The ongoing events in the United States over the past two weeks now have been tremendously painful and tumultuous for so many. The horrific death of unarmed black man and father George Floyd, who was murdered in cold blood by a white police officer in Minneapolis for the world to see, has shaken many of us to our core. The past two weeks have rightly witnessed some of the largest and most sustained protests in this country and throughout the world. On behalf of yogic studies, I would just like to say, enough is enough. Black lives matter, period. It's easy to shout, All Lives Matter, but until Black Lives Matter, we cannot truly say that all lives matter in this country or anywhere else. The podcast episode that you are about to hear, I'd just like to note that it was recorded several weeks ago prior to the current events which have been unfolding in the wake of George Floyd's death. This episode also deals with uh, some heavy topics of another kind, namely sexual abuse. I hope that you'll find it's an important example of the value and importance of studying history and why a more honest and objective telling of history is so deeply needed in the present and for shaping a better future. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Yogic Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Powell. This podcast features in depth explorations into the traditions of yoga, Sanskrit, Indian philosophy, and South Asian religions. Through candid conversations with scholars and practitioners, we will immerse in the latest and most cutting edge research on all things yoga. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Yogic Studies podcast. I hope that you're doing okay, especially during these strange and difficult COVID times. Thank you so much to everyone who has been writing in and sharing your positive feedback of the podcast so far. It's just lovely to know that you're finding value in these conversations, and I'm excited to see where this podcast can go. In today's episode, I am joined by Philip Deslip from UC Santa Barbara in Northern California for an important and timely conversation regarding the history of Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga. We'll discuss Philip's pioneering scholarship on the history of this tradition and the recent controversies surrounding Yogi Bhajan and his legacy. Philip Deslip is a historian of American religion with a background in American studies and literature. He's currently a doctoral candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara, where he is writing a dissertation on the early history of yoga in the United States from the mid-19th to mid-20th century. Philip has published articles on the history of modern yoga in academic journals such as the Journal of Yoga Studies, Amerasia, Sikh Formations, and in popular venues including Yoga Journal, Air and Space Smithsonian, and the Indian news site Scroll. Last year, Philip taught a fantastic course for us here at Yogic Studies entitled YS-102, Modern Yoga in the West. This course is all set up for self study, and folks who are interested can enroll anytime. We're happy to offer our listeners 20% off the course tuition by using the promo code Philip20. That's all caps, P H I L I P, and the number 20, Philip20. And you can find out more about the course uh, and even register at yogicstudies.com forward slash ys-102. Now, before we begin today's episode, I'd just like to give a bit of a content warning up front. This conversation features highly sensitive subject matters, including sexual abuse and the current allegations surrounding the late yoga guru, Yogi Bhajan. The controversies currently unfolding within the 3HO kundalini yoga community, have come to light recently based on documented accounts of abuse, which have been made public in a recent memoir entitled, Premka, White Bird in a Golden Cage, My Life with Yogi Bhajan, which was written by Pamela Sahara Dyson, a close disciple and attendant of Yogi Bhajan. Since the publication of Premka in early 2020, Numerous letters from other disciples have also come forth. Along with other materials referenced in this talk, you can find a link to this book in the show notes of this episode. Okay, so with all of that in mind, please join me in welcoming Philip De Slip to the Yogic Studies podcast. All right, I'm here with Philip De Slip. Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to join the Yogic Studies podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me, Seth. You bet. So we have a lot to discuss today. Um, number of topics, really. You know, I want to talk to you about your research on the history of Kundalini Yoga. I want to get into a bit, you know, somewhat sensitive and timely topic today of what's going on regarding the controversy and uh, allegations surrounding Yogi Bhajan. And then I also want to talk to you more broadly about your dissertation work and your research on what you've called early American yoga and rethinking the the history and narratives of how yoga has come West and uh, how yoga has become what we know of it. Uh, today. But before we get to your research, um, one of the things I'm hoping to do in this podcast is also to learn a little bit about the stories and biographies of these yoga scholars and thinking about how we come to the subjects that we study today. And so I wonder if we could begin with you telling us a little bit about your story and how you came to religious studies, to doing the PhD at UC Santa Barbara, uh, and in particular to the uh, subject matter that that you specialize in.
1: Okay, so my my history with yoga and with uh, academic work and scholarship, they really begin uh, almost, (laughs) at the exact same time, at least in the same week. Uh, When I was an undergraduate at the University of Connecticut, uh, the first few days I was on campus, I saw a flyer posted for free yoga class. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, I've always been curious about yoga. And so my first week of classes as an undergraduate, I took my first yoga class. It was a class in Kundalini yoga, as taught by Yogi Bhajan, Hmm. was in a wrestling room in the rec center. It's kind of like the perfect place to have a yoga class, wall-to-wall mats. Although we were directly underneath um, a basketball court, and so there would be judo classes above us occasionally. And so we would hear these like loud uh, bangs and thumps above us uh, occasionally. Mm -hmm. So I started um, my undergrad as I started uh, the practice of yoga. Um, The classes, the yoga classes were really interesting because at the beginning of a year or a semester, there would be a huge rush of students who wanted to try. And by the end of the semester, everything would be whittled down to about five or six devoted hardcore students. And I was one of those Um, As I started practicing yoga, I immediately started wanting a deeper and deeper practice. And I started practicing on my own. I started purchasing manuals. Um, I really got into it. And then my second year as an undergrad, I spent that year abroad in Paris. And it was there that I met a really wonderful um, academic mentor, a woman named Viola Sachs. Um, She was in an American studies program there. She specialized in American literature, and she was born in Poland, and then she eventually got her doctorate uh, in Brazil from Claude Levi-Strauss. Just fascinating person. She wrote the first Polish to Portuguese dictionary, and then she came to France uh, and got a job as a professor in the aftermath of the student riots of May 1968. So she was at Cariwit in Saint-Denis, which was an unusual university. It didn't require a baccalaureate. And so it was a really interesting and diverse place. And she was a great person to study under, very creative and eclectic and curious. And I took, I think, four seminars with her that year. Uh, And she brought in all sorts of really amazing guest speakers, uh, the late Emery Elliott and others. And during that time, I also continued to practice Kundalini Yoga. And then I continued to do so when I returned back to the University of Connecticut. And I eventually got my degree in English with a minor in American Studies. So from my undergraduate years, I was really raised up in being very eclectic and interdisciplinary. Um, I did a, a huge research project on the New York City grid system and how different literary works talked about it and responded to it. Um, so that kind of became the norm for me of to really look across disciplinary boundaries and um, look at subject matters in, in a really kind of unobstructed um, open way. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a few different jobs um, after I graduated. Um, I worked uh, in early childhood education I got certified to teach Kundalini Yoga. I lived in Los Angeles for a while. And then around 2008, after practicing Kundalini Yoga for about a dozen years, um, I moved from Los Angeles to Iowa and I began um, what I originally thought was going to be a PhD program in American Studies. And before I left for that program in Iowa, I was talking to someone just kind of conversationally about different things that were interesting and they mentioned a person named William Walker Atkinson to me. They said, yeah, really interesting story. No one really knows much about it, but there was a guy named William who wrote some of the first books on yoga in the United States under the name of Yogi Ramacharaka. And I thought, "Oh, that's really weird. That's that's pretty interesting. I'd like to learn more about that." So, as i started this program at the university of iowa i started developing chops as a researcher you know you start reading books with not just an an eye towards the information but how histories are being constructed how people are doing research Um, i got into ethnography and interviewing people uh, finding sources uh, requesting material tracking sources down and as i'm researching William Walker Atkinson and his contemporaries, people who are teaching yoga in the early 20th century, a big light bulb went off. And I I suddenly realized that Atkinson, like so many of his peers, they just made their lineages up. Hmm. They just created their past or their background or their credentials. And then I, I had the thought of, I wonder what would happen if I used these research chops that i've been developing and i focused it back on the practice that i myself had kundalini yoga as taught by yogi bhajan and i then embarked on about a year and a half of really intense research onto yogi bhajan and his kundalini yoga Um, i tracked down early Published materials by his group, 3HO, the Healthy, Happy, Holy Organization. Um, and from those materials, I started finding people who were involved in 3HO in its formative years, and I did interviews with them. I started searching through newspaper databases, requesting a lot of the 3HO manuals.
0: And was this, Philip, was this all during your time as an MA? Student in Iowa in you say England? yes that was that was all during my time as an MA student. Hmm. Wow, so you were already kind of diving into the deep of doing primary research um, as an MA student.
1: Yeah, I mean i i I was driven mostly by by curiosity and kind of the challenge of of that kind of detective work. But I I got very deep uh, into that history to the point where, um. I was able to find and interview firsthand witnesses to many of the the formative events in Yogi Bhajan's history, and the history of his Kundalini Yoga. And so I put all that research together, and I published an article through the journal Seek Formations in 2012. And that that was published right around the time that I left. I graduated with my MA from the University of Iowa, and I began. The Ph.D. program at UC Santa Barbara in their Department of Religious Studies, Um, and then at Santa Barbara, I returned to that early history of yoga um, in the in America in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. So, in brief, what I found in that article was that Yogi Bhajan claimed that his yoga had an ancient secret lineage that connected to the Sikh lineage. And what I found in fact was he was combining different elements of his own teachers and creating a somewhat new style of yoga. And after the first two years of him being in the United States, he kind of, as we would say using our computers, he cleared his cache and he kind of covered up his previous history. And then he created a new history and a new lineage that then became the accepted history within 3HO.
0: Okay, so so this article, which is titled, From Maharaj to Tantric: The Construction of Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga. So you wrote this in 2012 for the journal Sikh Formation. And were you still practicing Kundalini Yoga at this time, or had you started to Uh, transition, if you will, out of the community in wake of what you were finding through your research? Or what was your connection to the broader kundalini yoga community
1: during this time? Um, When I was living in Los Angeles, I was living very much uh, within a 3HO kundalini yoga community. When I moved to Iowa, um, I had a lot of geographic distance from them, um, but I was also Um, starting to distance myself from the practice, um, I found that it it really, it wasn't working for me anymore. Um, And also more and more through my contact with the community and talking to people, um, a lot of doubts and a lot of questions started to get raised uh, in my mind about um, not only the efficacy and the legitimacy of the practices, but also the nature of, Yogi Bhajan and his characters. And I, I had heard several stories about um, his own behavior and bits and pieces of his actual lineage, the actual teachers that he had, uh, particularly with uh, one figure, um, Maharaj Virsa Singh, who's a Sikh saint from outside of Delhi. Mm. Um, and in many ways, my research was it was both scholarly, but it was also a way for me to understand what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And that process, and I think that the end product, that article was something that I wish I had had, which was an honest appraisal of what the yoga was and where it came from. Mm. Um, I concluded that article um, with perhaps a very diplomatic statement saying that You know, maybe it's the experience of practitioners that's the most important thing, the most important vantage point to view things from. I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I appreciate more and more over the the intervening eight years since that was published that the two aren't inseparable. The experiences that we have, uh, the dedication and commitment we have to a practice is inseparable from the claims that that practice makes about itself and the lineages that it claims. Um, I think that's one reason why in this bigger sphere of health and wellness, one of the things that sets yoga apart from something like Pilates or CrossFit or jogging, um, it has claims and ties to other older that claim to be more than just exercise, more than just the body.
0: And let's just look a little bit broadly at what this article did and the significance of it. And then I also want to think about, you know, the reception of it within perhaps the the kundalini yoga community. Uh, So just reading here from the abstract of the article, Philip writes, as opposed to the official history of kundalini yoga, that claims it as an ancient and secret tradition prior to Yogi Bhajan's open teaching of it. This article argues that it was a bricolage created by Yogi Bhajan himself and derived from two main figures, a Hatha yoga teacher named Swami Dhirendra Brahmachari and the Sikh Sant Maharaj Birsa Singh. And so, The aim of this article then is really to kind of clearly delineate these two distinct and major influences in the shaping of of Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga. And in some ways, or in many ways, the narrative that then is birthed out of this article is is, uh, quite challenging to the received historical narrative from within the community. So maybe can you share with listeners a little bit? First of all, I mean, what is the narrative from within Yogi Bhajan's uh, Kundalini Yoga community? What is the traditional narrative of where this yoga comes from? And then what did you find in your research? Who and who are those those two teachers? How does how does he bring this all together?
1: So, what becomes the standard narrative within 3HO is that. Yogi Bhajan was a master of a secret practice of yoga that had a tradition extending into and beyond the Sikh Gurus. There are different claims that 3HO made that Kundalini Yoga was thousands of years old, in other materials they claimed that it was tens of thousands of years old, and that Yogi Bhajan was trained by his master santa zara singh and that when yogi bhajan arrived in the united states in late 1968 he was the first person to teach kundalini yoga openly to the public without initiation and without previous requirements and within 3ho the understanding was that there was a thing that they called the golden chain a link from teacher to student, student becomes a teacher, and then the link goes to their students. So the idea was that there was a clear and direct lineage that went from Yogi Bhajan, from Yogi Bhajan students to Yogi Bhajan, from Yogi Bhajan to his teacher Santasara Singh, and then back Mm in time. The problem with this is that there really wasn't much of a history before Yogi Bhajan's claim teacher of Santasara Singh. Mm. And this brings us to a, a very important aspect of kundalini yoga. I think we can look at this aspect in three different ways. Um, kundalini yoga is unique in the world of modern yoga. It is unlike other forms of yogic practice. And because it is so different, There is chanting, there are different forms of meditation, there's a different class structure, Um, there are many different types of exercises and meditation. It had really been overlooked by scholars of yoga and within the yoga world. In some ways it was like an anomaly. Mm. It's in the room, but it's not similar to everything else, so in some ways it's left to the practitioners and the claimed experts of Kundalini Yoga to explain themselves. The second thing is that within the world of academic scholarship on new and marginal religious movements, what we would popularly know as cults, uh, 3HO was overlooked. And there are several scholars who noticed this fact. And they said, how come there was this big group in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they had so many of the features of other groups that were studied as sects and cults, the Unification Church, the Hare Krishnas, the Branch Davidians, uh, but yet no one ever really talked about them as a cult. And the answer that some of them came up with was that Yogi Bhajan and his followers claimed to be Sikhs. And so as part of a recognized religious tradition, scholars of new religious movements overlooked them. Well, there's nothing to, to question. They're Sikhs. They're just Western converts to Sikhism. So mm-hmm. there's no nothing there. And I think the third facet of this is that the claims that Yogi Bhajan made about his Kundalini Yoga, they eliminated the ability for practitioners within the group to look at their own tradition. Um, Yogi Bhajan said that you know, Kundalini Yoga was an exact science. You couldn't tamper with it. You couldn't modify it. Um, but as one of the people that I interviewed um, years ago said, he conveniently constructed his lineage so that there was no one that you could call upon. There was no one who could verify his claims outside of himself. Mm. And in my 2012 article, I used the metaphor of a small restaurant that puts mirrors on opposing walls. And so there's an illusion of depth, but there's no actual depth. When you trace back the claims that are made about Kundalini Yoga, what it is and where it comes from, see that from the books that talk about it, those books cite 3HO manuals. And the 3HO manuals cite 3HO periodicals. And the 3HO periodicals are citing yogi bhajan's lectures and talks um, it really is um, a lineage that comes from the mouth of a single man mm. it's legitimized through just what you can accept on faith through yogi bhajan so in my article one of the things that i really made great efforts to do was not only to present an accurate narrative of what kundalini yoga was and where it came from, but to show the evidence, to show my own process, what sources did I use? Who did I talk to? Where did I go to? Uh, My father was an accountant for over 35 years. So I think part of that rubbed off on me. You know, Mm -hmm. before it became a colloquial expression, I was always taught to save my receipts. And so, you know, I think about, Almost a quarter of the pages of that article are sources and footnotes. It's heavily documented. And I was very careful about the sources that I used. Um,
0: now, in your tracing of sources, you do find that Yogi Bhajan did have very distinct teachers and influences. Yeah. And so it's not as if he was just making things up Wholly on the fly, he did have these very distinct influences that shaped what would become his Kundalini yoga. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about what you know who those teachers were and and what they contributed to then maybe the unique formulation that Yogi Bhajan put forth as he synthesized you know what he learned from his teachers
1: yeah i mean one of the one of the criticisms I received from members of three h o and you know. Yogi Bhajan's apologists after the publication of my article was that uh, they claimed I didn't talk to the right sources. But if you look at um, my footnotes and my sources, the person that I'm quoting more than anyone else is Yogi Bhajan himself. Mm -hmm. And the first hints that I got about who Yogi Bhajan was studying with, they actually came from Yogi Bhajan himself he openly talked about many of his teachers and influences in the first few years that he was in the united states after the spring of 1971 that narrative drastically changes and it kind of changes for good but early on he talks openly about how he studied with swami durendra brahmachari and how he was a student of maharaj Virsa singh so what he does is he takes for the most part, he takes the physical components of what Swami Durendra taught Mm -hmm. and he merges them with chanting and mantras from the Sikh tradition that he takes in part from Maharaj Virsa Singh. He also adopts the persona of Virsa Singh and he makes claim to being within the lineage of Virsa Singh. As I explained in the article, you have these, two main influences and yogi bhajan claims them in two very distinct ways to the public to newspapers to reporters um, to universities that he's offering classes at he describes himself as a student of swami durendra brahmachari because durendra has um, a fairly famous yoga school in delhi some of his students are famous and powerful figures like politicians he does not claim Maharaj Virsa Singh in public. Instead, he only really claims Virsa Singh as his teacher in private to his students. And I argue in, in the piece that this makes sense. You know, he's using Durendra as a publicly understood credential, but he's using Virsa Singh as a kind of credential for his students that are coming from the hippie counterculture, who are reared on myths they've received from Carlos Castaneda, an autobiography of a yogi about needing to find a spiritual teacher and the power of gurus and the necessity of having a guru. So
0: in the article, you talk about how there's a bit of a tension for him among his students because these narratives sort of come into conflict because his teachers are still alive. They're still living in India. And this sort of comes to a head when he brings a large group of Western students on a pilgrimage to India in 1970, I believe, Yeah. when they're going to go to visit and have darshan with, uh, is it Maharaj Virsa Singh? Yeah. So what happened, as far as you can understand, uh, from your sources during that trip, and why was that significant? And then the, the reshaping, the reformulating of this this narrative of lineage.
1: He goes to Virsa Singh's um, ashram, Gobind and Virsa Singh is kind of shocked and he says, What are all these people doing practicing yoga? I never taught yoga. Mm. Why this, are they doing this? this?
0: This is his Sikh guru who didn't teach physical yoga to him.
1: No, so Virsa Singh taught um, chanting Nam, name of God. Um, reciting Gurbani Kirtan, seek hymns, uh, working hard and sharing the fruits of your labor with the poor. So mm. Saden is, it's a farm. It's a working farm. It's very small and that's what life was like at Gobind Saden during that time. You got up really early, you chanted Nam, you sang Gurbani Kirtan and then you worked all day in the fields. You You grew food and then there were there was singing and chanting in the evening. There was eating in the evening, and that was it. It was a very kind of simple life. There was no yoga. There was no yoga that was taught. Um, what it seems from the people I interviewed then, and people that I've interviewed since then, is that Yogi Bhajan was kind of a was kind of a shtick that got away from Yogi Bhajan. Um, he built up a thing on his own, and he tried to in some ways, rein it in when he met back up with Maharaj Virsa Singh. During the, during the meeting that he had with Virsa Singh, Yogi Bhajan tried to like cut some sort of franchise deal of like, I'll have my students in America, you can do your thing out here. Just really weird, kind of laughable um, demands for a student, for Chela to make of their uh, teacher. What I heard after the publication of the article was that when Virsa Singh gave Yogi Bhajan his blessing to go to the West, he gave it on certain conditions, and they were not to sell spiritual teachings for money, uh, not to be involved with women, and like all the criteria that Virsa Singh gave him was, was broken during his two years in the West. Um, as we found out recently, when um, Yogi Bhajan comes to Saden with his students, he is sharing his room His lodgings with both his wife from India and his mistress that he's sleeping with. Um, So it's kind of not hard to imagine how such a big break could occur on that kind of trip.
0: And how did this impact his students and them them seeing this, their understanding of his relationship with his teacher and what sort of impact do you think did that
1: trip have? Yeah, I, I think it Part of the reason that Yogi Bhajan's organization survives this rapid change and this, in many ways, disastrous trip is that Yogi Bhajan can still keep his place as the interpreter. And the people on this trip, they don't understand the Punjabi language. They don't understand a lot of the things that are happening culturally, politically. And so they're relying on Yogi Bhajan to interpret it for them. And so that that serves him, Um, when he goes back to the the United States, he claims multiple titles that, again, are only validated by him. He's the only one who who can prove or disprove them.
0: He Mm -hmm. claims
1: that on their trip, he was given the title Siri Singh Saib, which makes him uh, the, the chief administrator for Sikhism in the Western Hemisphere. He also claims that he uh, is the mahan tantric, so this is like a singularly powerful title that someone can hold only one mahan tantric at any given time that he 's a master of tantric energy over the years he gives this he gives various claims as to what this means, but he claims that he received this title through the ethers through the previous mahan tantric again it's a title and it's a claim that no one can prove or disprove. It's it's just done completely out of bounds. And eventually, Yogi Bhajan rewrites the history to say that Beersa Singh wasn't exactly his teacher, um, but Beersa Singh had become sort, some sort of like black magician who wanted to steal his students. So he's able to rework this narrative into being something that serves him. Um, I think one of the factors that is true in 3HO and it's true in so many other groups is that there's turnover. And so many of the people who are on this original trip, many of the people who are around in 1968 and 1969, they leave and many of the people in 3HO arrive after 1971. So you really have this shift over time of people who knew the old story are gone, people who only know the revised history. They're the people who make up majority, the vast majority of members. And related to that, of, you know, most of the people who were around in the early days, they're willing to go along with Yogi Bhajan's revisions. In some cases, because they trust him, they believe him, in other cases, they don't know better and they can't disprove um, anything. They're kind of reliant on Yogi Bhajan to give that narrative to them. Mm.
0: So as somebody who had been a part of this community yourself, had been a practitioner and even teacher for many years, I think you had to know that in writing this article, it could have ripple effects. It could be received in a variety of ways by the community, by the broader public, uh, and that this could be incredibly dismantling for, for somebody who has a lot at stake in these received narratives, and have even created identities and lives and professions sometimes around these historical narratives. And this is, of course, today not unique only to Kundalini Yoga and Yogi Bhajan. Unfortunately, this is now a reality that many yoga and spiritual communities are facing globally right now, as uh, stories of of abuse come to light and institutional structures that have revolved around these charismatic guru figures begin to collapse
1: mm-hmm.
0: and many people within these communities are now struggling to reconcile the teachings the practices that have been so influential to them and transformative with you know these human guru figures and and some of the uh Terrible things, really, that have come to light. And so, so to kind of transition to that a little bit, you know, how was how your article received? Uh, let's say when you wrote this in, in 2012, uh, which is even before some of the, the more recent public uh, discussions uh, surrounding Yogi Bhajan, you know, how was this received in 2012 by the community or you know, in the years since then?
1: Yeah, I all the things that you mentioned were very much in my mind when I sat down with the research that I had done and wrote my article. I was very aware of how tumultuous revelations like that could be. And so with that in mind, I did several things. The first thing I did is I tried to make absolutely certain that any claims that I was making could be backed up by documented evidence, that I'm, I'm not just saying things to say them, but I'm making claims based on overlapping and overwhelming evidence. Um, second, I really wanted to be open and transparent about the sources that I was using, which is why there's so much footnotes and so many Um, sources that are used um, also to provide clarity as to who I'm where I'm getting this from Um, you know not really using any anonymous sources but also for people who are curious to be very clear about where Yogi Bhajan is getting his practices from and so if they are curious they can follow through with that um i was also careful in my language to not be dismissive or not be insulting um i ended the article very deliberately by talking about um, the experience of practitioners and how um you know they're not completely deluded by doing this thing there must be some benefits from the practice if so many people are doing it for so long
0: Yeah, I think if I can jump on there, I think you actually make a really important point in the conclusion of the article, which is not to dismiss the practice or any efficacy or value from the practice, but in many regards, perhaps to find a more realistic explanation, as you say, of why it works as it does for its practitioners. And that is to say, where these particular practices come from. And I think by showing that you know the more physical practices actually do have a connection to a teacher in Swami Direndra Brahmachari and that the Sikh aspects and the mantras uh, and those elements of Kundalini Yoga come much more clearly from Virsa Singh. It actually offers a little bit more transparency and clarity uh, in that Let's you know, Yogi Bhajan wasn't just making all of this up. These things do have um, some history to back them and some tradition behind them. Even if the ways in which Yogi Bhajan was uh, repackaging everything and claiming it as this eternal, ancient, golden chain, even if that might not be entirely the case, and so in that way, you know, I think you're you're careful to not be overly dismissive. Of the practice, but to to really just try to point us more clearly to the sort of chain of events, the the, the transmission, and you know clearly step by step, trying to unpack where where all of this comes from. So yeah. in 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 doing that, uh, you know, what was was there an initial response? Did people well, read this article when it came out? I mean, it, it, you know, it, sometimes as a scholar, you don't really know you know is is anybody really even going to read this beyond you know um, your faculty members and your advisor
1: yeah well i I, w- I wanted to make two two points really quickly one was that in hindsight i almost feel like that conclusion needed even more explanation because many people took the took my statement that experience should be taken seriously and they took that to an extreme to say, well, that's all that really matters. And I don't think I, I would really agree with that. It's more than just the experience. You know, there's, there are very clear and sudden limits to that kind of new age navel gazing of all that matters is how I feel and what I think. Um, and also that while Yogi Bhajan, in a certain sense, it's a, it's a linear shift. Um, there's also, that's not to downplay, um, the manipulation and the falsehood that is involved in misrepresenting a practice to the public. Another important thing in that article that I deliberately did was in doing my research, I found out so much about Yogi Bhajan's Uh, history of sexual misconduct, of assault, and of criminal activity that he undertook and that members of his organization undertook, I made a conscious decision to not include that in the article. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the reasons were it would just be too much to cram into 20 or 25 pages. Also, I knew that if I included that, however well-sourced and documented that was, that that would make all of my findings immediately dismissible by members of 3HO, that they could say that, see, he wants to tear down the organization, he's a slanderer, he's hate-filled. These are all accusations that um, have been made (laughs) about me regardless in the years since it was published. Um, So I knew that if I put those things in, a lot of its potential audience would be immediately turned off. And so, I included the information that I did, and I wrote in the tone that I did, wanting it to be read by current members, ex-members, people who were pro-3HO, people who are anti-3HO, and as well as uh, people who didn't know about Yogi Bhajnar 3HO at all. I wanted to create something that could be accessible, um, at least read with an open mind um, by those various people. Um, when that came out in 2012, There was an initial burst of interest and then it had a steady readership um, in the the years afterwards. One of the things that's very interesting about having all of these online networks for the sharing of academic work, Mm -hmm. ResearchGate, um, academia.edu, various open access um, websites, is that you get a very clear sense of how many people are reading your work, where they're coming from, and it's not just putting a message in a bottle. Uh, You really get to see the life of a published piece after it goes out into the world. And so I could see um, month by month that my article had a steady and consistent uh, readership from around the world. In many ways, where there were practitioners of Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga, someone would find their way to my article. And I received a fair amount of response, usually from members or ex-members who wanted to let me know that they were always curious about where this came from. And my article answered their questions and they appreciated it. Mm. I never received an official response from 3HO. And this is this kind of kept going on. Um. Since 2012, and then four months ago, one of Yogi Bhajan's former secretaries, Pamela Dyson, she published a memoir entitled. Um, I think it's the official title is Premka: White Bird in a Golden Cage. My life with Yogi Bhajan. Uh, you've got it right there in front of you. Um, Pamela was one of Yogi Bhajan's first students. Um, she's taking classes with him soon after he arrives in los angeles and she's with him for several years and she becomes the secretary general of 3ho she's one of the administrative officials in 3ho helping to run the organization Um, she's also one of yogi bhajan's staff and as becomes clear in the course of the memoir that to be a a member of yogi Bhajan's staff means one that you're female and two um you're probably having sex with him and in her memoir pamela also talks about her own sexual relationship with yogi bhajan about how he gets her pregnant and on how and how on during the first trip to india in late 1970 1971 she was pregnant uh, by yogi bhajan and at her insistence she has Uh, an abortion in Delhi that she nearly dies from. The memoir begins um, with, you know, a really kind of striking and chilling opening line uh, from the very first page. She begins, quote, the cramping and then the hemorrhaging began in midair. As I felt the gushing warmth that quickly turned to cold wetness between my legs, my mind raced trying to make sense of the sheer volume of blood that was suddenly drenching me. One empty seat away from me, Yogi Bhajan had been dozing off. And then it begins from there. Mm. Pamela Dyson's memoir was not the first time that there had been discussion of Yogi Bhajan's misconduct and assault and misdeeds. It wasn't even the first time that there was documentation that was available about these acts. Mm. Um, But it was a unique moment. Dyson clearly was an eyewitness to these events. Um, She is writing in a very clear and measured tone. But also in 2020, we are within the window of the Me Too movement. And we're in a time when we have seen one scandal after another in the yoga world. So I think that many of the things that would have allowed members of 3HO or maybe members of the general public to not believe Pamela Dyson, they were suddenly gone. And there was a a receptive audience to her memoir. And that really opened the floodgates. Um, To promote her memoir, a Facebook group was formed where people could discuss the memoir Um, in its revelations. And that group quickly became a place where other women came forward to talk about their own stories of abuse within 3HO and at the hands of Yogi Bhajan. And then the group quickly expanded. I think it's now over 5,000 members. And so the whole thing just really snowballed. And from these stories coming out, 3HO contracted a third-party organization to investigate these charges and their report is due in June. And by last count, there were well over a hundred people who called into this organization called an olive branch to give testimony about their own stories of abuse. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing has become um, massive. And what I found again, through the the simple boring analytics of downloads for that article is that it took on a completely new life of its own. And it was downloaded about 24,000 times before her memoir came out. And then after its publication, it was downloaded another 24,000 times, I think even more than that. So it, and in hearing people talk about my article in the light of Dyson's memoir, it really points to, um, the responsibility and the, and the power that researchers have um, when talking about lineage and the origins of practice uh, and in covering the details of uh, these kinds of groups. Um, many people told me that that article was the confirmation that they needed to change their practice or leave the practice. For some people who already had concerns it was enough to make them leave 3HO um, Many people, after reading Dyson's memoir, they then went to my article as further confirmation, according to them, of if Yogi Bhajan was making up things about everything else, I want to see how he was making up claims about his yoga.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for sharing and bringing us up to speed with that a bit, especially for listeners who might be more new to what's unfolding right now in the Kundalini Yoga community. Uh, to this particular uh, controversy surrounding Yogi Bhajan. And, you know, this is a very difficult topic, obviously, to talk about, uh, and this is sort of unfolding right now as we speak. Uh, and in many ways, you know, what we're talking about, and your scholarship, this article, and these terrible events um, and and abuse and suffering that has occurred, in some ways this sort of highlights... Uh, the role of the scholar uh, and this type of scholarship right now, as you know, many members in this community are are, are looking uh, for new sources uh, of authenticity, if you will. They're 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 reconceptualizing, you know, the knowledge that they've inherited and and trying to figure out where to go and where to turn and and what sources of information that they can rely on. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising that you've seen this huge uptick in views and downloads of this article. But it's also a moment where then we have to think a little bit, you know, about what is the role of the scholar and and, and the historian of yoga in this moment. So I wonder if you could uh, reflect on that a little bit with me uh, and kind of how do you see your role at this moment uh, as a scholar of this tradition?
1: I I think what my experience over the last seven and a half years and over the last four months has shown me is that scholars, historians, and academics, they hold a different form of authority and they work with a different form of knowledge in general, in a general sense from um, the yogic communities that they study. Um, It was in some ways jarring to me to realize how new some of the information that I had uncovered was to many people in the community. Mm. And I think for many people who are in 3HO, they already had their sources of knowledge. Um, Their knowledge was coming from within the organization. It was coming from their teacher. And this makes sense. If your teacher is the authority why would you listen to anyone else? Um, I I very, um, very pithily answered someone who asked, how did you find all this stuff out by honestly saying it was all in newspapers. All this information was published in newspapers. Mm -hmm. And it was only then that I realized that for many people within the group, there wouldn't be a need to go outside and do independent research. Um, So I think, Many of the things that we take for granted as scholars and historians, um, that is a special form of knowledge for many of the people in these groups. Um, Scouring through outside sources, going through databases, um, tracking down original sources, trying to find uh, provenance to exercises and practices and quotations and sayings. I think it also points to the unique kind of authority that scholars and academics have um, to be affiliated with a university, to have two or three letters after your name. Um, Those carry weight. And it's not to simply suggest that um, we are looking down on our subjects or we have a kind of knowledge that they don't. um, Because I think it's much more complicated than that. Um, mm-hmm. I think often scholars who wittingly or unwittingly do hegiographic studies of their subject, they are often useful idiots. They are often used to embolden and legitimize traditions that in some cases they haven't looked at critically enough. In some cases, scholars who are hypercritical to the point of being abrasive, they also end up solidifying the groups that they study. They become um, a perfect outside threat or enemy um, Mm -hmm. for a group or a leader to point to and say, you see, the real knowledge isn't with (laughs) all this thinking, all this studying, with all these academics. It's really with our experience. Um, I think the example of 3HO showed me at least Um, what are we doing that is of value to the communities that we study? In many ways, it is what we often think of as the preliminary work, the historical research, the interviews, the compiling of data and information, the creating of timelines and of sequences of events. Um, Those are often valuable. I know many academics think that that's simply the prelude to their Um, eloquent theorizing of what happened, but often that acquiring of sources, that building of an archive is what is extremely valuable. I think with yoga groups, and it's also true with new religious movements, the comparative work that scholars and outsiders do is also extremely valuable. To see the patterns that extend beyond a specific group, the similarities that groups have across one another um, that's often very revelatory for people within a specific tradition uh, to learn that other groups have had similar structures and similar problems uh, can help them to look at their own situation in their own communities anew.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate you saying all of this. And I think it's important uh, to think about more, more fully in all of its complexity. And, you know, if, if, if yogis are coming from a particular hierarchical model where the the power or authority of knowledge has been centrally placed to a guru, mm-hmm. and then that sort of collapses, well, in its wake, you know, I think we should be careful not to just transfer that power and authority of knowledge onto simply another figure, like mm-hmm. a scholar. And I... And I think w- what you're pointing out is that perhaps what is unique in the scholarly approach then of, of the pursuit of knowledge is that at least in its attempt, we're trying to be transparent about mm-hmm. the sources of knowledge, about you know where you know how how did you construct these arguments? How are you laying out all the, all of this data? Where does it come from? So that you're not um, it's not about you in that way, yeah. but we're, it's really about about the sources.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, uh, and that people can then, you know, kind of trace all of that for themselves. And in that way, it's about the ideas. It's about the traditions. It's about these people and figures and historical events rather than any one individual.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was always taught that um, in my own graduate work, that that was the ideal of scholarly work, that the arguments, the evidence on their own could stand up that in many ways the person making those arguments is secondary and that no matter who you are the argument that you're making can stand or fall on its own merits and you know one of the interesting (laughs) tests of that that i found was um, in many of the rumors that grew up around me in my work after the publication of my article i only found out a lot of this recently. Uh, Apparently there were really strong rumors that I was paid a vast sum of money uh, to publish my article Mm -hmm. Uh, for anyone in academia. um, I I can hear them laughing Mm -hmm. (laughs) already. Um, The only payment I received was a a free issue of seek formations Mm -hmm. and that's it. Um, I also heard that I was part of a organized uh, cabal I was trying to, like, undercut and overthrow 3HO. Um, some of the more emotional ones said that I was, quote, a hate-filled man with an anti-seek agenda. Um, and that was interesting because I could, I could honestly point to the article and say, I'm not, but if I was, how would that change what's printed? Does that change my sources? You can look up all of those sources. You could make up your own mind. I've shown all of my work. Every argument that I make has a reference to it that you yourself can, can check and verify. Mm. So, but I also think it's important to, to always keep in mind that you know, when you are writing about an existing tradition, when you are writing about a community, People's lives are at stake. People's well-being, um, in many cases, you know, without even being dramatic or exaggerating it, many people's sense of themselves um, hangs in the balance of the conclusions that you could make. And it doesn't mean that you hold back from publishing what you believe to be true, but you you fully embrace what those consequences are, and that the people whose lives that you're studying and writing about. They're not a, a second thought, a secondary thought uh, that you're aware of what those things are. I, I personally believe, after doing that research, having it published, and seeing the consequences of it, this may seem like a very mundane metaphor, but I think the place where I see scholarship and practitioners meeting is with the buying of a used car. When you go and buy a used car, there are certain things that you are entitled to. And we, on all sides, we all accept that those are things that you as a buyer are entitled to. If you buy a used car, under law, you're entitled to know what it is that you're buying. Mm. What is the history of the car that you're buying? What is its agreed upon value? Is there anything that is dangerous or risky? Um, and today, we're, we're very comfortable with going online and seeing reviews of other people. Can I hear, good, bad, and indifferent, what other people have had to say about their own experience with this? Um, if a car was in a flood, you have the right to know that. If the car was totaled in an accident, you have the right to know that. It can be traced back through a VIN number. And I think that's a fair measure for a spiritual practice. Um, How much greater is our investment in a spiritual practice that we engage with on a weekly or a daily basis? You know, a practice that we go on retreats for or that we build our lives and our circle of friends and communities around. Um, I think those same questions are things that we're all entitled to. What is it? Where did it come from? What is its value? What What is the history of this? What has it been through? What do other people have to say about this? Um, those are honest and fair questions. And I also think that those are questions that um, maybe before any kind of theoretical understanding or scholarly um, consensus or disputes, those are the kinds of issues that those of us who spend so much time studying practices and communities, we're equipped to answer. Mm.
0: Yeah, well said. That's a that's a very interesting analogy. Um so as as the Kundalini yoga community tries to get clarity on you know what those those pieces, those uh elements of the of the car of Kundalini yoga are, you know, if you will, um I think it's 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 naturally it's it's a very, very challenging time because uh, as you've said, you know, these uh, these practices, these, these teachings, these ideas, they, they have become identities, they've become careers and livelihoods, families and, and, and communities have been shaped around them. And so I think many people are in these uh, positions of having to now reconcile and try to parse, you know, what, what are the things that they want to maintain? Uh-huh. And you know, what are the aspects, you know, uh, of yogi bhajan's influence? You know, how do you separate, you know, the 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 man and the teachings or the practice? So one thing I wanted to ask you is actually just about the name Kundalini Yoga. It's actually something that's always puzzled me as, yeah. as a bit of an outsider to the tradition and as as a historian of yoga, because you know, for myself, when I think of Kundalini Yoga. I really think more of Tantric yoga and medieval Hatha yoga, which is really all, you know, in in many ways centered around what I would call a Kundalini-based yoga system where you're you're doing uh, bodily yoga techniques, asana, pranayama, mudras, and so forth in order to stimulate and awaken Kundalini. But these things really, uh, at least, as you know my source texts that i'm I'm looking at are not so related directly to what we what we think of today as Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini yoga and so I wonder if uh, you know if you have any thoughts about you know why that name actually was chosen and as people in the community are trying to move forward and you know trying to you know, yeah. Find a way forward. Have you have you found conversations around? You know, do they do they keep the name? Do they try to you know maintain the practices, but try to distance them from from Yogi Bhajan himself? Or just any thoughts that you have? You know, around really the brand of Kundalini Yoga
1: associated with with Yogi Bhajan. So I think I can answer that in two parts. Um, about the term Kundalini itself. I think that was a natural name for Yogi Bhajan to use. When I interviewed Reinhard Gamataler, who was Swami Durendra Brahmachari's last student, he told me a funny story that when he decided to start publicly offering the yogic techniques that he learned from Swami Durendra, he initially called it Kundalini Yoga until people stopped him and said, actually that's already out there and that's how he learned about yogi bhajan mm. uh, so in some ways it was natural um one of the stated goals of durendra's practice of Vyama was to um energize the channels of en- energy and raise the kundalini so that makes sense but also it seems like Yogi Bhajan in Los Angeles in 1968, 1969 is kind of having his cake and eating it too, with the term kundalini. He's calling his yoga kundalini yoga. And this is, um, as you see from his lectures during this time, his students are aware that this is a secret, mysterious, dangerous, powerful thing. And so Yogi Bhajan on one hand is promising them. You know, kundalini energy, but he's also dramatically rewriting the terms uh, on which kundalini is understood. You know, there's no dramatic awakening. There's no like uncoiling. There's none of the "quote unquote" traditional kundalini experience of a shot of energy up the spine and people having these dramatic and in some cases horrifying uh, awakenings. Yogi Bhajan kind of reduces the stakes and says that. He's raising kundalini. He's activating kundalini energy in a safe, practical way. So you'll know that your kundalini is raised uh, because you'll just be healthier and you'll be more creative and more energetic and more productive. Um, And he does this with a lot of terms, Kriya, Tratakam, Tantra, all of these terms that are familiar to people who study yoga in one sense. They're given different meanings and different understandings within Yogi Bhajan's system, um, and that brings me to the the other part of your question, which is, what does three HO? What do practitioners of Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga do uh, in the wake of the scandal surrounding Yogi Bhajan? Mm. And I mean, we're only really in the beginning phases. You know, the official report doesn't come out until June, and I think. You know, when the entirety of everything comes out, it'll just be a tsunami. I'm sorry, what do you,
0: what do you mean by the official report? Can you say a little bit about that?
1: the The report that three uh, HO commissioned, the third party investigation done by an Olive Branch, mm. they're the group that's received the hundred plus testimonials, and they'll be compiling a report that'll be released um, in June. Mm and from the indications of the stories that have come out um, from the number of people that have contacted an olive branch um, it seems clear that not only will previous allegations be supported um, but a host of new ones will come out and i don't know how they'll move forward and how they'll rebrand i think it's easier to speculate how they will not be able to rebrand how they will not be able to move forward Um, I think the example of Bikram is is a telling one. Mm. Um, how often do you hear his name spoken by practitioners? How many people are on Instagram using the hashtag Bikram Yoga? To my sense, well, apparently, i still running these teacher trainings. But where is he running them? What? Mexico.
0: I think in in South America. Is that
1: right? Yeah, and I think that, you know, a, a chapter that. Suzanne Newcomb and myself wrote about um, Anglo- the anglophone world and yoga. I think that's a, an important point that there is there are barriers of language even today in 2020, mm. and I think it's telling that Bikram um, is now operating kind of behind the firewall of language, you know, away from so many of the newspapers that reported his misdeeds, mm. you know, away from the documentary in English. Um, and how many, how many people do you see on Instagram proudly using the hashtag Bikram yoga? From what I've seen, it's a, it's a large scale retreat to referring to it as hot yoga or just not mentioning it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when the misconduct of Yogi Bhajan becomes public, it'll be a foregone conclusion. No one will want to connect themselves to a figure who was responsible for so much abuse.
0: I think, you know, something that we, we've touched on this a little bit, but, you know, maybe requires a little bit more, more, more discussion. I think one of the unique aspects that, that may just be obvious, you know, about kundalini yoga of Yogi Bhajan compared to other modern schools of yoga is that it's, it's been um, practiced uh, and handed down as, as this distinctly Sikh or Sikh, uh religious practice as well. And it really is distinguished among other forms of yoga in that it's a really, it's a more religiously focused or centered practice in that one is not just kind of going to a drop-in yoga class, but is also really taking on a new religious identity yeah, and so you have you know the, the this whole tradition of uh western converts into Sikhism, and so it's now it's not just you know simply reconciling where did these physical practices come from or uh you know reconciling you know a pranayama practice, but really it's 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 a it's an entire religious uh identity that yeah. is tied up. You know, in the history of the tradition, and going back to this uh, to this guru figure, so I think it makes this particular case even that much more uh, complex. You know, uh, deeply hitting uh, for folks, and perhaps even harder to sort of separate. Um, you know, the the man from from the practices or the teachings. Uh, I wonder if you have you know any thoughts about that you know, and, and how that makes this case perhaps more, more unique.
1: I think in some ways it might make it easier to reconcile um, those things. So what Yogi Bhajan does um, really early on 1969 to 1970 is he has wide eyed hippie students who they want to be like their teacher. They want to become Sikhs like him and he does not discourage them. Um, but he goes along with it and he is also constantly connecting his teachings and his form of yoga with the Sikh tradition. And these are very tenuous claims. And, and again, you have this constant revision by members and this kind of selective memory and this editing. When you go to his lectures, you know, he's explicit. He's saying the Sikh gurus did the, 10 human Sikh gurus, they did the kind of yoga that I'm teaching you. Um, I can give you explanations for Sikh practices, why Sikhs do the things that they do. And they're very different than what 99.9% of other Sikhs in the world do. Um, Yogi Bhajan is also playing one side against the other. You know, there's fairly limited contact between his 3HO Sikh converts and um, the rest of Sikhs in the world. And he's also saying that, you know, other Sikhs don't really understand their own tradition, not like you do. I think perhaps the most awkward height of this is when there's a slogan within 3HO in the mid to late 1970s that the sun will rise in the West, meaning that Western converts to Sikhism are the the fulfillment of, you know, the Sikh faith. Um, They are the ones who are going to, you know, be the, the true carriers of the banner. Um, so it's a very intertwined mess and, you know, his claims don't really hold up. If, um, if there really was a vibrant tradition of Sikh yoga, um, you know, good luck finding it. Sikhism is a relatively recent major religious tradition and there is such a wealth of, of evidence in history. And we know so much in so much detail about Sikh gurus and Sikh history. And we simply don't see Yogi Vajan's claims of Kundalini yoga practice anywhere in this historical record. I think for many current members, um, in some ways, it's a way out. Um, You know, a lot of yoga practitioners talk about how to separate the man from the teachings, the teacher from the teachings. And I think for many people who cooled to the yoga over time but remained as Sikhs, it's a way that they can in some ways jump ship. You know, like we talked about scholars who overlooked 3HO as a new religious movement instead saw it as simply Sikhism. I think that is a thing that many current members uh, can do. They can simply um, hold on to their identity and practice as Sikhs, and let go of much of what Yogi Bhajan taught. Although it makes it very complicated and tainted. I mean, mm. you know, to be very simplistic and blunt about it, what do you do when um, someone who's corrupt and, and, in many cases, so full of falsehood, is offering you access to a real and legitimate tradition? It's, it's a very complicated thing. Mm.
0: Well, Philip, I think we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. You know, I All did right. um, have this whole other uh, section that I wanted to get into. I wanted to talk about early yoga in America and your dissertation work and the, your article, The Swami Circuit. But I think, you know, I think it was important to kind of go deep into the subjects that we that we talked about today. And I didn't want to rush that. And so yeah. I also don't want to rush uh this other aspect of your research, which is really fascinating and important. And so I'm hoping maybe we can do, uh, you know, a part two or, or another episode with you in the future. Absolutely. That. Would that be okay? Absolutely. Okay. That, yeah, that would be great. And um, yeah, I just really want to thank you for, you know, uh, kind of going deep into the weeds with us. Uh, to helping me facilitate this conversation, having, you know, this very honest and difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's really important to talk about honestly and openly, and it's important to kind of think about, you know, as we, as we've done, you know, here today, you know, how, how the scholarship and, and the history of yoga, you know, kind of, is now you know and this is a case where it's sort of feeding in in real time to you know a moment of crisis and how you know re-envisioning these histories uh you know might really matter and it might you know even you know offer a way forward not to completely dismiss but to re-establish to re-pick up the pieces perhaps in a more honest and transparent manner. So I want to thank you for kind of modeling that a bit for us today and um, just kind of throw it back to you. If, if there's any final thoughts that you have, as we kind of wind down here, was there anything you wanted to say, you know, about any of this that you didn't get a chance to, or kind of any final words uh, kind of, you know as as perhaps the Kundalini yoga community is 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 trying to move forward in all of this
1: I guess as um I guess one final thought that I could have on it is in some ways it's easy to look at the community as a story unto itself, but I think just as People entered 3HO with a mixture of influences, um, how that community deals with this crisis, um, that will also provide a lesson that extends far beyond the community. By that, I mean Lola Williamson in her book on Hindu-inspired meditation movements called Transcendent in America, she has this great uh, little bit in it where she talks about how She interviewed her subjects and she asked them what books they had read. And you find that no matter what group people ultimately stayed with, they had all read Autobiography of a Yogi. Most of them had read Carlos Castaneda. They were in this mixture, this world of seeking a guru, that ideas of who a spiritual teacher was and why you needed one they were thick in the atmosphere. And I think that's really interesting the more you go into it. It's interesting to think that even if you've never read Carlos Castaneda, just by being in the new age yoga wellness world, you're still encountering a lot of his ideas, second or third hand. Um, And I think as 3HO handles its scandals, that is going to provide a lesson to other groups, in the same way that I think they can look to groups like ISKCON, Kripalu, um, mm-hmm. John Friend, and Anusara, they can look at how they handle their scandals as points of reference. And
0: unfortunately, it seems to be an ever-growing list today.
1: Yeah, and and I think that that might point to um, a much bigger thing of. Um, you know, people who study new religious movements, you know in the 2000s and the 2010 s there was a lot of open discussion of you know where have all the cults gone? You know we studied all of these groups that were kind of on the margins of society, they lived communally, they had like a central charismatic leader, and we don 't see them anymore and some people speculated, well, the internet kind of undercut this, other people speculated that maybe those groups were part of a particular time in American society and I wonder if we're reaching a point where this idea of a lineage headed up by a charismatic unique man with endowed with special authority if maybe we've we're past that time I think it brings up a lot more interesting and many cases, difficult and awkward questions of, you know, is that model that, is that model inherently undemocratic? Is that model um, uniquely disposed to facilitating abuse and misconduct? Um, is it possible to have spiritual communities that are um, non, non-authoritarian, that are, that are democratic and built on consensus and not authority?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the the positive side of this sort of shadow side of, of of the yoga world, if we could say, is that with a book, with a confessional book like Pramka's, you know, from the voice of, of of one of these victims, of centering her voice, of taking it seriously, it's been it's giving the courage and the the platform for other victims of abuse to come forward to also be taken seriously. And I think we're seeing this across a lot of traditions right now. And I, I think in the truth of that, in the wake of, uh, of the truth of these victims and those voices being taken seriously, um, it's leading to something new. The dismantling of these hierarchical systems is there's, there's something new that's going to be created out of this. Uh, and that, you know, Many of these communities are going through, but uh, we we don't know what, what what the future will hold. Yeah,
1: yeah, and part part of the irony of of all of this is it is it's uncertainty within a much larger uncertainty. Um, you know, all these revelations with 3HO are happening in the shadow of a pandemic, and you know, a lot of people socially distancing themselves, um, being in isolation, travel is you know, ground to a halt. Um, so it's, it's an interesting combination. Um, I know that many of the meetings that were happening within 3HO were done virtually. And I think if those meetings, the telling of tales of abuse and misconduct had to happen in person, I don't think they would have happened in the same way or to the same extent and so right now as we're at the tail end of you know just this unraveling of so many um, scandals within the yoga world we're also seeing this really precarious moment for the model of yoga centers and teacher training programs you know, many people have talked about how it's an unsustainable model who knows how long the pandemic will go on for? You know, we might have a, a very different world and you know of lesser importance. We might have a very different model of yoga practice and yoga teaching. Um, and I think it's very interesting to wonder how those two things might meet. What new ideas of authority and lineage and practice might meet up with the infrastructure of teaching and practicing yoga at the other end of all of this.
0: Yes. Well, it's a very strange and precarious time. And uh, I thank you, Philip, for helping us to navigate through this. And uh, thank you again for, for sharing with us sort of your journey of your scholarship and uh, for, for the great work that you're doing. And Welcome. uh I I look forward to having you back on to get into the early American yoga material. But uh, until then, Philip, um, thanks again. And uh, please stay safe, stay healthy. And we'll talk soon, okay?
1: All right. Thanks for having me, Seth.
0: All right. Thanks, Philip.